All right, cool. So now, once again, something new. Uh, we'll go into Herbert Marcuse's One Dimensional Man. So this is uh, moving over into the Frankfurt School. Uh, now he's, um, you know, he had an interesting life. He moved over to, I think he was teaching at Berkeley for a while in California after he fled Germany because of the, you know, the Nazi thing. Or actually, I think it was UC San Diego he was most affiliated with, but I think he floated around uh, giving lectures all around California and, of course, all around the United States. So for those who don't know, uh, the Frankfurt School was a group of white guys in Germany, I guess in the early 20th century, that were really uh, heavy critics kind of implementing, um, I will reluctantly say, a kind of neo-Marxism. Uh, in many ways, they weren't Marxist, and it is a separate category. They did form their really own group. Uh, and they were all very divergent. So not two of them shared the exact same opinions about anything. Uh, and it included thinkers like Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, uh, Habermas, I believe, uh, Benjamin, you know, and a number of others that were all heavy critics of modern society in many ways with their own different flavors. So it is kind of an umbrella thing to say that they were critics of modern uh, society, but that doesn't really give us much. So anyways, One Dimensional Man is one of Marcuse's really kind of foundational texts. The other one would be uh, Eros and Civilization. So as that title, Eros and Civilization, might suggest, and I'm sure I'll do it at some point here, he was very interested in uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and just Freud's thought and how he could couple it with Marxism, which is a little bit reductive, uh, but we'll get into the kind of specifics of that. So One Dimensional Man, as the title might suggest, is really pointing at the, or trying to call attention to the fact that in modern day, like a, kind of late capitalism, or at the time in the, you know, the mid 20th century, uh, people were essentially reduced to cogs in a kind of capitalist machine. So many of his ideas were pretty radical at the time, uh, I heard a story once that he um, he once had like grad students or he would hire grad students to stay outside of his house at night with it with a loaded gun because he was getting so many death threats and, and there was always the, the threat of being attacked, which was, you know, par for the course at that time, especially talking about this kind of stuff, even today for that matter. Uh, it was pretty radical because especially with the kind of red scare and the, you know, the fear of communism. This guy was not uh, appreciated very much. So on that note, here we can jump right into it. So first chapter titled The New Forms of Control. So what does that look like for him? Well, he starts out by saying, a comfortable, smooth, reasonable, democratic unfreedom prevails in advanced industrial civilization, a token of technical progress. Indeed, what could be more rational than the suppression of individuality and the mechanization of social ne necessary but painful performances. The concentration of individual enterprises in more effective, more productive corporations, the regulation of free competition among, among unequally equipped economic subjects, the curtailment, curtailment sorry, of prerogatives and national sovereignties, which impede the international organization of resources. That this technological order also involves a political and intellectual coordination may be a regrettable and yet promising development. 
So this was a pretty radical idea at the time, the idea that there could be such thing as a democratic unfreedom. So for Marcuse, democracy, like many of the other so-called uh, kind of zones to potentiate one's individuality in a kind of politically meaningful way, were simply uh, trompe l'oeil, were simply tricks of the eye, were simply, I, I guess, pressure valves to convince people that they had some degree of autonomy which, of course, this book is intended to dissuade any such belief. So freedom of speech, freedom of political opinion, freedom of uh, sovereignty, all of these things that were essentially, you know, benchmarks of a kind of enlightenment, um, you know, value set, uh, are being transposed onto the domain of the market, onto the domain of economics. So now you have free market enterprise, you have, you know, uh, respecting the individual autonomy of corporations, these types of things. So he see, he sees all this occurring, and he's really considering the extent to which humans at that time, or I guess people living in that system, are in fact free to be who they want to be, or are all their desires, or all their kind of individual aspirations, be they political, social, or cultural, whatever, are they simply mediated and in that way formed by that very kind of uh, oppressive system of late capitalism. So there are for Marcuse two kinds of needs, and he says that there are true and false needs. For him, false needs um, are those which are superimposed, this is on page five, are those which are superimposed upon the individual by particular social interests in his repression, the needs which perpetuate toil, aggressiveness, misery, and injustice. Their satisfaction might be most gratifying to the individual, but this happiness is not a condition which has to be maintained and protected if it serves to arrest the development of the ability to recognize the disease of the whole and grasp the chances of curing the disease. So one such example that I can think of would be like getting, you know, the newest type of cell phone. You know, people spending thousands of dollars on phones that cost dollars to make, of course, uh, and how that Attaining that thing, that phone, gives people a sense of satisfaction, but only briefly until the, you know, the new model comes out. Then suddenly they have to have that one. Uh, I think this would be a good example of a false need in the Marcusean sense, uh, precisely because it doesn't get at the problem of the perpetual generation of these kinds of needs. So like curing ca someone's cancer does not solve the problem of cancer, right? It doesn't get at the root of it. So it's important for Marcuse that any sort of uh, satisfaction, any sort of kind of acquiescence of one's desire be uh, interrogated a little bit and considered within the broader uh, economic spectrum in which it, it, in which it resides, that is, that is capitalism. So in opposition to these false needs, Marcuse gives us a, a kind of another broad understanding of true needs. So they are as follows. So the only needs that have an unqualified claim for satisfaction are the vital ones. Nourishment, clothing, lodging at the attainable level of culture. The satisfaction of these needs is the prerequisite for the realization of all needs, of the unsublimated as well as the sublimated ones. So for those that aren't familiar, uh, these terms will come up again in the book. Uh, sublimation is the kind of, he's using it in the psychological sense here, where uh, or I guess sublimation is when someone represses a kind of animalistic desire, be it sexual or aggressive or 
anything else, and then sublimates it or transposes it into culturally productive acts. So let's say, for instance, that one kind of residue of our animal ancestry would be our, you know, sense of competition or aggression. So us being productive agents in society would be our sublimating that, um, our sublimating that kind of aggression into a culturally productive thing. So sublimation is, for Freud at least, sublimation was something to celebrate. It was a marker of us moving into, you know, kind of Leviathan or a, <laughs> a Hobbesian mode of civilization that separated us from the hardships of nature. So unsublimated would simply be the kind of uh, return, in a sense, to those other impulses. So there was a kind of treading between the two. So while sublimation was necessary to some extent in order to create a, uh, a, a decent division between us and animals or our animal a ancestry, uh, it was necessary in a sense to not totally sublimate everything because then, you know, what would humans do? Because you still have to do all the copulation and the eating and the everything else that were necessary for humans to feel as such. So in calling attention to all this, Marcuse is really trying to um, make people aware of their kind of, not only their class consciousness, because we're kind of, Marcuse has kind of done away with this idea of class. He sees everyone being susceptible to this, and he sees everyone being subject to its kind of oppressive tactics. So property owners, capitalists, these are all people that are, you know, have given themselves over essentially to the culture industry and are losing their kind of uh, sense of humanity because of it. So for Marcuse, all liberation, this is seven, all liberation depends on the consciousness of servitude, and the emergence of this consciousness is always hampered by the predominance of needs and satisfactions which, to a great extent, have become the individual's own. So he's, again, here he's calling attention to this in an effort to make people aware as a sort of prerequisite to the, to the possibility of challenging it. This kind of, I guess, consumption consciousness or consciousness of consumption opposes the logic of liberation or at least the illusion of liberation that permeates through this society. So he says that free election of masters does not abolish the masters or the slaves. Free choice among a wide variety of goods and services does not signify freedom if these goods and services sustain social controls over a life of toil and fear. That is, if they sustain alienation. So we have to distance ourselves, or it is necessary for us to recognize that the other means by which we attain a degree of liberation work within the confines of the very system that perpetuates that alienation. The satisfaction, he, he kind of continues, so the satisfaction of desire through our accumulation of things attests to the extent to which that we have, in this process of consumption, personified things. Things come to house a meaning that they otherwise otherwise wouldn't have. So he says that people recognize themselves in their commodities. They find their soul in the automobile, hi-fi set, split-level home, kitchen equipment. The very mechanism which ties the individual to his society has changed, and, which, and, and social control is anchored in the new needs which it has produced. So that we can draw a line between this and, and Marx's idea of fetishism. So in Marx, the idea of fetishism was a very mysterious thing, 
right? So fetishism is when an object, or specifically a commodity, attains a value that is wholly separate from the means of production that have gone into it. So he would ask some questions like, why does, you know, that chair have, you know, a certain value that is much higher than another chair that had the same kind of value attached to it? Well, it's a very kind of odd thing. And it is culturally determined uh, and, all, and all that. And we can see the same thing happening here. At least Marcuse is identifying with the thing like the automobile or the hi-fi set. It is personified in a very mysterious way. It attains a value or a significance that extends beyond the means of production necessary to create it. The formation of one-dimensional man in this system then uh, occurs because of a few different things. So you have the whole, uh, as we've been explaining, the kind of saturation of commodities that have been personified. But there's also something that occurs on a kind of linguistic level, where Marcuse says in an almost conspiratorial way uh, that one-dimensional thought on page 14 is systematically promoted by the makers of politics and their purveyors of mass information. So their universe of discourse is populated by self-validating hypotheses which incessantly and monopolistically repeated become hypnotic definitions or dictations. For example, free are the institutions which operate. So in the countries of the free world and so on, free market, free enterprise, these types of things uh, that instill into the mind of the minds of the people the sense that this freedom does in fact prevail. This propels us then into chapter two, the closing of the political universe. So as the title might suggest, we were pretty good, well, it deals with the closing of the political universe. So to what extent are politics motivated by economic factors that would signal their being uh, not rendered separate or a kind of separate uh, sphere away from these private interests, uh, but are instead intertwined with them in many ways. So the main trends are familiar. He's, as he says, uh, concentration of the national economy on the needs of the big corporations with the government as a stimulating, supporting, and sometimes even controlling force, hitching of this economy to a worldwide system of military alliances, monetary arrangements, technical assistance, and development schemes, gradual assimilation of blue-collar and white-collar population, of leadership types in business and labor, of leisure activities and aspirations in different social classes, and so on and so forth. So beneath the surface of, let's take the United States uh, political system, you know, both sides would uh, do not align politically in some ways, but underlying each of the parties are huge uh, donors, huge corporate interests that motivate and guide many of the policies that actually make it through. Now, these aren't the policies where ne the public is necessarily pervy to. They have to deal with foreign policy, with, you know, the United States is... Uh, um, imperial imperial uh, conducts overseas and not, not so much overseas that the people don't really have any sense of. So Marcuse wants to draw attention to that and question the extent to which our engagement in politics is only surface deep, where we don't actually see what's going on behind the curtain. So he provides one example um, on page 20, 2021. He says, in labor looks... Uh, labor Looks at Labor, a conversation, which was published by the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions in 63, uh, it, it reads, The union is not going to be able to convince missile workers that the company they work for is a fink outfit when both the union and the corporation are out lobbying for bigger missiles, 
bigger missile contracts and are trying to get other defense industries into the area, or when they jointly appear before Congress and jointly ask that missiles instead of bombers should be built or bombs instead of missiles, depending on what the contract they happen to hold. So he's pointing to the extent to which that even these so-called left-wing organizations are still subject to a kind of greater logic of domination. In in this case, a kind of neo-imperialism through kind of uh, American war machine. This corresponds to a general logic of administration that Marcuse taps into. And there's a similar term in Adorno where uh, he calls it administered life, right? Where it's uh, the rendering bureaucratic of every moment of one's life or kind of uh, placed under the kind of bureaucratic gaze that makes people, you know, work like cogs in a machine, office rats. So on these grounds, he says on 21, there arises a universe of administration in which depressions are controlled and conflicts stabilized by the beneficial effects of growing productivity and threatening nuclear war. So in this stabilization, temporary in the the sense that it does not affect the roots of the conflicts, which Marx found in the capitalist mode of production, or is it a transformation of the antagonistic structure itself, which resolves the contradictions by making them tolerable? So that's an important question, I think. And there's a, there's a funny point, and uh, I will digress. Uh, Baudrillard says that maybe all of this, you know, this hyperconsumption and all this, is, is communism realized to some extent, uh, where anyone, you know, anyone with, a, with an asterisk uh, can get what they want, essentially, for very little, relatively. Sure, it might break in a year, be obsolete, but, you know, you can get it. Laborers under this system in late capitalism have undergone or undergo in this kind of administered life uh, thing undergo a number of changes and he goes through them pretty uh, in pretty much detail here so number one mechanization is increasingly reducing the quantity and intensity of physical energy expended in labor this evolution is of great bearing on the marxian concept of the worker to Marx, the proletarian is primarily the manual laborer, laborer who expends and exhausts his physical energy in the work process, even if he works with machines. So that's an important distinction. But there's also something we must consider, uh, and this is something that is found in Marx, where for Marx, in order for surplus labor, so surplus labor is, or surplus value, is what is extracted from the laborer after they have worked enough to essentially pay for their being there. So once they have worked enough to pay for their being there, everything after that is is surplus value that the capitalist can ex- extract from them. Now it is totally necessary for Marx, or that Marx recognizes, for this to be living labor. So you can't just change all living labor with machines and then extract the same kind of surplus value because a machine can only, I guess, put out what you put into it. Whereas living labor, there's something kind of odd about it. It can do more than uh, you can put into it. So that's why, you know, we have companies are more prepared to go overseas and get cheap labor than to uh, mechanize every single aspect of their labor. So the kind of Henry Fordist ideal in the early 20th century uh, went out the window, the mid, early mid-20th century kind of went out the window, where instead it became about going overseas and getting cheap labor, which seems counterintuitive because machines can ostensibly work for free. Uh, so, But still, this shift is important to recognize and that Marcuse uh, highlights here. 
So the second transformation goes as follows. The assimilating trend shows forth in the occupational stratification. In the key industrial establishments, the blue-collar worker declines, or the blue-collar workforce declines in relation to the white-collar element. So with the uh, development of a kind of mechanization of the labor process, what is necessary are not more workers, but are people uh, necessary to oversee those workers. And again, in Marx, there's another um, thing he says, God, I think it's in the Gundrissa, but I, I don't remember, um, where he says that humans under this kind of mechanization become uh, watchdogs, I think he says, or watch watchmen of the, of the machines. That's pretty much their only job. And in as such, he says that very interestingly, that they become like organs of the machine. So here we get the third uh, transformation. So these changes in the character of work and the instruments of production change the attitude and the consciousness of the laborer, which become manifest in the widely discussed social and cultural integration of the laboring class with capitalist society. So in other words, the kind of development of a middle class. And then number four, this is on 31, the new technological work world thus enforces a weakening of the negative position of the working class. The latter no longer appears to be the living contradiction to the established society. So whereas there was that very stark divide between capitalists and proletarians, where the proletarians, in how Marcuse frames it here, occupied uh, a contradictory position, so that contradiction in the time of Marx was that somehow they, uh, the laborers were able to put in more than they were taking in, right, or to exert more than they were taking in, and they were able to produce more than they were uh, getting paid for, it, it worked, it didn't make any sense for, for Marx. He sees there being a, a growing kind of acquiescence, a kind of acceptance of that role, and uh, a slow uh, dissimulation of a kind of barrier between uh, capitalists and proletarians, where the capitalists no longer have a kind of dominating role or dominating pers personality as they once did, but instead take on a kind of uh, bureaucratic role that is much more in tune with uh, benevolence and, you know, a kind of cool, easy, laid-back personality that is, makes it much easier to control people with because no longer are they recognized as being um, being the, the, loci, the loci of oppression. So all of these kind of transformations, while they are heading in, a, in an oppressive direction, at least that's what Marcuse is focusing on, he says there is a kind of potential here. So what we see is the kind of reduction of physical labor required for people to go into, to go to work, to satisfy their uh, the necessary needs. Uh, you have a, uh, a reduction of the distinction between capitalists and workers, where there is a kind of a relative increase in the um, status of living for the, for the workers, for the proletariats. And you have you know, machines doing the job for humans. So he says that we are almost, it's almost like we're on the verge of there being a, a, what he calls a transcendence on page 37 toward a new civilization. So if all these different transformations were placed in favor of reducing uh, labor, you know, not in the search of profit, you know, to uh, disarm nuclear weapons, these types of things, then it would be, and he is very idealistic, which is, you know, people can certainly challenge him for this, uh, then we'd be moving in the right direction.
So, you know, he's kind of alluding to that at this point, but he'll get into it more. So this hypothesis that the move towards a kind of transcendent uh, new society is in tune with the prophecy that Marx kind of laid forth. So for Marx, it was totally necessary, and this is where I think many quote-unquote Marxists get it wrong, uh, that, you know, the people that directly oppose capitalism, Marx thought capitalism was necessary and in many ways celebrated it. Like in one letter that Engels wrote, um, he deplored or he heavily challenged people who thought that with the uh, coming of capitalism, they thought that we have to go back to like a kind of agrarian mode of living or get back to the land or something. Engels was like, no, this is this is all good. So for Marx, as for Engels, it was totally necessary for capitalism to develop, to develop uh, science, you know, so we can move away from religious superstition, from kind of countryside superstition, all these types of things, so that we could develop, um, uh, we could develop wealth, we could develop literacy and all this. So this is why in many ways um, some Marxists get it wrong, you know, when they just outright oppose capitalism, which is totally wrong in a Marxist sense, uh, at least for me. Um, but that is why in places like Russia, where, you know, they were trying to catalyze uh, the development of, of uh, communism, it, did, it couldn't work because you had people like an illiteracy rate of like 90% or something that Marx didn't, wouldn't have approved of that because you need people to be educated and you need this, this education is necessary to awaken people to their kind of class consciousness or to the possibility of realizing class consciousness. Uh, so Marx, or Marx, sorry, Marcuse says it, says it here on page 40. So society must first create the material prerequisites of freedom for all its members before it can be a free society. It must first create the wealth before being able to distribute it according to the, the freely developing needs of the individual. So following from this uh, line of thought, um, Marcuse considers if, if it's possible for other civilizations that haven't already entered capitalism to simply skip it, right? So he says, to which his answer, and this is, he spent a lot of time kind of building up to this, on uh, page 47, he says, no, absolutely not. What we will see if we see people go from what he calls a pre-technological to a post-technological society, what we will see will be um, the development of either uh, a kind of terroristic dictatorship or uh, a kind of or a complete dis, uh, dissipation or destruct, self-destruction. And he, he poorly calls these indigenous um, places backwards. So that's something to, you know, obviously criticize. Returning to this context, or the, the, at least the American context, uh, Marcuse then considers the welfare state as being a um, you know, proponent for this capitalist system. So while it might seem, he says, that the, the welfare state serves the end of raising people up, it in fact just kind of puts them into an administered living situation on 48, he says that, which is bad, of course. So sure, there is a, a relative increase in living where people are able to have the objects or the commodities they want, but ultimately it comes at the cost of having them entered into this kind of administered living situation. 
And because this entire logic is so pervasive, and people associate the accumulation of commodities with the satisfaction not only of physical or biological needs, but creative, imaginative, emotional, emotional needs. Um, Marcuse says that if individuals are preconditioned so that the satisfying goods also include thoughts, feelings, aspirations, why should they wish to think, feel, and imagine for themselves? So if they constantly displace these kinds of wants or, or these desires or these aspirations or whatever onto objects that can satisfy it for them or them for them, why would they have any desire to actually put their mind to work, right? And then if all of these objects are associated with liberation, so if there's the belief that getting the new car, getting the new phone is going to make you happy, make you a more free individual, then Marcuse says very interestingly, the enemy is not identical with actual communism or actual capitalism. He is, in both cases, the real specter of liberation. That is, the enemy is the specter of liberation. So, and he continued, this is on 52, even the existing liberties and escapes fall in place within the organized whole. Then it is no coincidence, or it's not odd, that Marcuse says that democracy participates in this very system because it, it is that illusion of freedom, that illusion of liberation, that is the real enemy that we have to fight against. So this comes out in all the different forms we've been talking about, right? So in our uh, the political capacity that is gifted to us, our location of liberation in commodities, our you know ability to move in a kind of upward mobility through uh, the work the work ladder, all of these things, because they give us a sense of liberation, are only the specter of liberation and are therefore what we need to really be challenging. And that propels us here into chapter three. So the conquest of the unhappy consciousness, repressive desublimation. So like I said before, sublimation is the transference of one kind of animalistic desire into a uh, kind of culturally productive thing. So desublimation would be the return to a kind of animalistic desire, you know, not sublimating it into culturally productive things, which looking at what uh, Marcuse has been saying so far wouldn't seem all that bad, right? So he's saying that we have essentially sublimated our uh, desire for liberation into objects, into upward mobility, into political uh, domination, so sublimation would be pretty good because that would almost get back to the real thing if we can say such a thing ever existed. But here, when he's when he's talking about it, he's bringing in the extra term, repressive desublimation. So we'll find out what he means by repressive desublimation. So the first layer of this repressive desublimation follows on the same tracks as we've been laying out so far. So if there is a kind of general or a broad cultural desire to render uh, liberation or to locate liberation in various objects or anything like that, Marcuse wonders to what extent or how long almost or how intense this needs to be for that to actually become true, where that becomes the reality. So in a kind of Baudrillardian fashion where the map covers the territory and then becomes the territory, Marcuse is wondering, is it possible for these, um, these objects, these commodities, can in themselves become a real zone of liberation, or at least in the minds of the people. 
So he says on 58, the perversion is indicative of the fact that an advanced industrial society is confronted with the possibility of a materialization of ideals. The capabilities of this society are progressively reducing the sublimated realm in which the condition of man was represented, idealized, and indicted. So at this point then, and this is the crucial sentence, higher culture becomes part of the material culture. So in these new objects, because they are, they become truth in a sense, do represent something of a desublimation where people can fully exert their kind of repressed animalistic desires or wants or, you know, the kind of evolutionary things within these objects or within their upward mobility or with anything else. So another thinker that really speaks to this would be um, Thorstein Veblen, uh, who talks about the kind of continuation of the barbari barbaric trends of humanity within various contemporary um, uh, cultural practices, like the accumulation of objects through conspicuous consumption or conspicuous waste or anything like that that are relics, in a sense, or extensions of the what he calls the barbaric you know, logic of, of or the, just the barbaric logic generally. As a consequence, there is a necessity for this culture to develop itself as a culture. This is because, he says, following that previous sentence, that is the, um, the, that higher culture becomes part of the material culture. So in this transformation, he says, it loses the greater part of its truth. So at one time, it was totally necessary for higher culture. So that is indicative of late capitalism or, or any kind of aristocratic ideal. Um, it was necessary for it to totally dissociate itself from um, from the, the dredges of, you know, the proletarian uh, disgusting mass, right? Where sublimation was essentially occurring. Now, what was necessary then, because there was the distinction between the two was becoming blurred, was this kind of totalizing cultural campaign to instill a, a, an idea of culture into our lives. Hence, we get something like this where uh, Marcuse says on 65, the cultural center is becoming a fitting part of the shopping center or municipal center or government center. So then therefore, domination has its own aesthetics and democratic domination has its democratic aesthetics. Oh, my cat is destroying things. That is, sorry, has its own democratic aesthetics. And this trend is in tune with the uh, movements in the early 20th century where fascist uh, governments, fascist nations, were um, aestheticizing, you know, political or military pageants, were, were uh, aestheticizing their kind of domination. And then, uh, you know, communists come in and say that, you know, we, we have to retain the value of art, in a sense. And I would be... a uh, an advertisement for ContraPoints if I could, so I'll just do the best I can. ContraPoints is a really cool video on that about the, um, where she takes into account the, the aesthetic uh, role of fascist fascism in the early 20th century, but that, you know, go, go check out everything she's done. So in the present culture industry, or in the culture industry at the time, Marcuse says that there, uh, certain things that had a 
specific value at one time. So this is kind of speaking to Benjamin's idea of the aura gets diminished when suddenly the examples he gives are uh, when you have Plato and Hegel, Shelley and Baudelaire, Marx and Freud, you know, being available to buy in paperback form in the drugstore. Like that is that signals not the extension or the uh, dissemination of knowledge to all people, but rather the, I guess, the evacuation of value from those sources. So specifically, he says, they are then deprived of their antagonistic force of the estrangement, which, which, which was the, the very dimension of their truth. That's on 64. So this is one of the more kind of problematic claims that he spends some time on where he goes on to say that uh, obviously when cities and highways and national parks replace the villages, valleys, and forests, when motorboats race over the lakes and planes cut through the skies, then these areas lose their character as a qualitative, quali qualitatively different reality as areas of contradiction. So this is kind of, you know, to put it in my words, uh, the kind of rendering positive of all areas. Now, what I mean by rendering positive is rendering accessible and making that accessibility comfortable, making it smooth, making it easy, that for Marcuse is not so good. So there is the necessity of a kind of contradiction because contradiction are what propels people outside of their kind of uh, comfort zone in, in towards like new possibilities. So within, if under late capitalism, everything is rendered comfortable, air-conditioned, nice, smooth, people will be less inclined to want to challenge those very foundations that make that possible, the same foundations that propel people into a new state of alienation and, and so on, which is essentially happening, he was saying, with these uh, literary figures, where their work is evacuated of its meaning because it is, you know, made just another commodity. But I'd like to know what you know, I don't fully buy that. I don't think just because something is sold in a drugstore, uh, it loses its value as it's even what it intended to do, not even to say anything of how people can make their own meaning with something. But, you know, I'd be curious, of course, to see what people have to say about that. And then he continues. And this one, this one always makes me laugh. He's like, uh, when he's talking about art, or when he's talking about everything that is produced in late capitalism, you know, the, the kind of sublimation of every, everything. Or, sorry, I should say the desublimation, because, you know, all our desires are realized through all of these objects, through all of these commodities. Uh, he says that, for example, compare lovemaking in a meadow and in an automobile, on a lover's walk outside the town halls, and on a Manhattan street. In the former cases... The environment partakes of and invites libidinal thesis and tends to be eroticized. <laughs> I don't know how you can't laugh at that. It's, it's... So what we are seeing then for him is a transference of the pleasure of the pleasure principle which absorbs the reality principle. So then we get the thing like sexuality being so liberated, supposedly, uh, or perhaps he says liberalized. Uh, so this notion implies that there are repressive modes of desublimation, compared with which the sublimated drives and objects contain more deviation, more freedom, and more refusal to heed the social taboos. It appears that such repressive desublimation is indeed operative in the sexual sphere, and here, 
as in the desublimation of the higher culture, it operates as the byproduct of the social controls of technological reality, which extend liberty while intensifying domination. So repressive desublimation in uh, this case, in the case of sexuality, is wholly oppressive because it gives us the semblance of a kind of emancipation or liberation or a return. So if sexuality is one of those things that we repress, as it is in Freud, Freud recognizes that from the age of zero, we have to be repressing sexuality. Marcuse says that when a system offers sexuality in a kind of packaged form, that is, and it comes out in any number of forms, like pornography or something like that, uh, or when he says here, lovemaking in a car, kind of a funny example, um, what we have then is a great illusion that convinces us that we are in fact being liberated when in fact we are not, at least according to him. That is how it's a kind of repressive desublimation. So sex is then uh, integrated into work on 75 and public relations and is thus made more susceptible to controlled satisfaction. So he compares uh, repressive desublimation, like the kind of packaged up neat form of sexuality that is, uh, you know, hairless and perfect, uh, to the kind of de- just just desublimated sexuality indicative of what he of what he says uh, O'Neill's alcoholics or Faulkner's savages in the streetcar named Desire and under the hot tin roof in Lolita in all the stories of Hollywood and New York orgies and the adventures of suburban housewives this is infinitely more realistic daring uninhibited it is part and parcel of the society in which it happens but nowhere it's negation. What happens is surely wild and obscene, viral and tasty, quite immoral, and precisely because of that, perfectly harmless. So still we get the remnants of a kind of oppressive system seeping into that, controlling it. So with this general logic of desublimation, people, he, he argues, people are less inclined to feel anything like guilt, because guilt being a kind of human function is transferred onto objects, which can then people have no feelings for, right? So then, because those objects are personified, real persons become objectified to some extent. So then he says, you know, you can have people flipping the switch and killing millions of people without feeling anything. Or how he ends this chapter saying, those who identify themselves with the whole, who are installed as the leaders and defenders of the whole, can make mistakes. But they cannot do wrong. They are not guilty. They may become guilty again when this identification no longer holds, when they are gone. So that is because they don't necessarily feel that way precisely because of the logic of objectification that permeates. So then in chapter four, the closing of the universe of discourse. So here we get the idea of the happy consciousness, which is the belief that he says on page 84, the belief that the real is rational and that the system delivers the goods. So that, you know, uh, unrepressive desublimation is occurring and people are heading in the right direction, essentially. Or... Uh, as Lauren Berlant calls it, kind of cruel optimism. So as we've been saying it, you know, it occurs in a material level, uh, but we've, as we've also said briefly, it happens at a linguistic level, and, and given the title of this chapter, that is the closing of the universe of discourse, he's going to be talking about discourse. So as he says on 86, vocabulary and syntax are equally affected. Society expresses its requirements directly in the linguistic material, but not without opposition. The popular language strikes with spiteful and defiant humor at the official and semi-official discourse. 
slang and colloquial speech have rarely been so creative. And there are so many examples of this. Uh, if anyone, if you spend any time listening to people, there are certain words that are repeated more than others. Words like like that are exceptionally annoying to hear. Uh, words that are used incorrectly, like the word literally, that are intended to give uh, the the speaker um, kind of the the aura of legitimacy that might otherwise not be there, which would signal, at least I think for Marcuse, a, a reduction or a one-dimensionality of thinking or of the ability to demonstrate that, that thinking. But in other forms that are a little bit more obvious, uh, such nouns as freedom, equality, democracy, and peace imply analytically a specific set of attributes, which occur invariably when the noun is spoken or written. And he continues on 89, that a political party which f works for the defense and growth of capitalism is called socialist, and a despotic government democratic, like North Korea for instance, and a rigged election free are familiar linguistic and political features which long predate Orwell. So some other examples, or he goes on to say, I shall attempt to show that the clean bomb and the harmless fallout, or other things like friendly fire, <laughs> are only the extreme creations of a normal style. Once considered the principal offense against logic, the contradiction now appears as a principle of the logic of manipulation, realistic caricature of dialectics. It is the logic of a society which can afford to dispense with logic and play with destruction, a society with technological mastery of mind and matter. So this is an extension of the administered logic of life that sees um, rendering everything smooth, rendering everything positive, it doesn't have the same negations as it once did. So nature is no longer a negation. Uh, the estrangement indicative of literature is no longer a negation. So what the system does to kind of attain a sense of equilibrium is create these artificial modes of negation, which come out in the form of the speech here. So when he says that the dialectic of speech is occurring, that is when you have uh, a proposition and its seeming opposite existing side by side. So that's how you can have something like a clean bomb. Two opposing terms forming an oxymoron or an, a kind of antinomy, oh my God, um, that work together. And this works to maintain a manipulation of the people precisely because, you know, it retains an illusion of um, negation within a system that has effectively done away with it or is in the process of doing away with it. And then he can he goes on to give all these other examples. Um, the same familiarity is established through personalized language, which plays a considerable role in advanced communication. It is your congressman, your highway, your favorite drugstore, your newspaper. It is brought to you. It invites you, etc. So this is certainly pointing to the neoliberal logic of uh, of language in this in this era. So these linguistic tactics, Marcuse opposes to what might have occurred in the past. So he gives the example of the Communist Manifesto, appropriately, suggesting that the Manifesto provides a classical example. Here, the two key terms, bourgeois and proletariat, each govern contrary predicates. The bourgeoisie is the subject of technical progress, liberation, conquest of nature, creation of social wealth, etc. Uh, similarly, the proletarian 
carries the attributes of total oppression and of the total defeat of oppression. So he goes on. This is on 100, by the way. Such dialectical relation of opposites in and by the proposition is rendered possible by the recognition of the subject as an historical agent whose identity constitutes itself in and against its historical practice, in and against its social reality. The discourse develops and states the conflict between the thing and its function, and this conflict finds linguistic expression in sentences which join contradictory predicates in a logical unit, conceptual counterpart of the objective reality. In contrast, and this is when he's speaking about today, or at least in this, at his time, all Orwellian out language, the contradiction is demonstrated, made explicit, explained, and denounced. So whereas today we, where we have things like the clean bomb, these two uh, terms are not seemingly opposite. In fact, they seem to work together somehow, which for Marcuse is a logical nightmare. Whereas in, in, at, in the time of the manifesto, for example, you have two different terms, the bourgeoisie and the proletarian, that have their respective places and oppose each other at, uh, as an effect. So then he gives us an actual example of this. Uh, so he takes, for uh, for instance, the classic of, industri uh, of industrial sociology, sorry, uh, the study of labor relations in the Hawthorne works of the Western Electric Company. So what he finds, or what he, rec what he states that they found, was that invest in investigating the workers' complaints about working conditions and wages, the researchers hit upon the fact that most of these complaints were formulated in statements which contained vague, indefinite terms, lacked the objective reference to standards which are generally accepted, and had characteristics essentially different from the properties generally associated with common facts. So there's no coincidence for Marcuse that this is taking place. This is a consequence of the assault on language that late capitalism does, because for uh, late capitalism, it sees language as being something that is very, dis you know, would, uh, uh, presents an, an insurgent threat. So it must be kept at bay. So as as he says here, or as he continues, uh, guided by the principle of operational thinking, the researchers set out to translate or reformulate these statements in such a manner that their vague generality could be reduced to particular reference, terms designating the particular situation in which the complaint originated, and thus picturing accurately the conditions in the company. So then they'd be reduced to even more understandable terms, kind of, you know, a double reduction of the language. So that'll close off uh, this talk here, uh, the first half of the book up to the second section titled One Dimensional Thought. So I hope that that was somewhat helpful. Um, and of course, I'll continue this next time into chapter five. Uh, but for those that, of course, made it this far, I hope it was helpful. Uh, it's a good book. I would recommend it to anyone. Um, interesting, full of insight. You know, it really applies to, it's as relevant today as it was back then, I think. Um, but, you know, for those that listened and have a problem with it, be sure to let me know. But otherwise, 